0: And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go unto my servant, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked The angel of the Lord found her by the spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to shore. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. Therefore, the well was called Be'er V'chaim Roim. It, it lies between Kadesh and Berod. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, there are a lot of strange stories in the Bible. So let's pray that God would help us to understand. Lord, we thank you that you speak to us by your word, and you show us what it means to live by faith. You show us the triumphs of faith at times, and you show us the setbacks. So we pray, even this morning, that you would show us, from this story, what it means to live by faith in you. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, This week... There were five episodes of the show Jeopardy that aired. Some of you know what I'm talking about already. The start of season 38. And this was supposed to be the start of a new era. A new host for the show. uh, You know, Alex Trebek died in the middle of last season. He had been the host for, I think, since 1984 or something. And it had a few hosts before him. But, you know, he was the long-term host. And there was a guy named Mike Richards who was named as his as his successor uh, a month or two ago. And he recorded five episodes and they aired this past week. But what happened before that before after they were actually recorded was reports started to come out about this guy, Mike Richards, who's been I guess on the production side of a lot of different game shows and things over the the past. He's also done a little bit of sort of show business type things. And what started to emerge was apparently recordings from a podcast that he had made uh, years ago and said a number of offensive things. I won't go into all of them. Uh, also, people started asking questions about sort of the culture of the shows that he had worked on and some of the problems that had arisen in, in them. And so he recorded five episodes, which is just one day of recording, uh, in, the, in the Jeopardy world. He recorded five episodes and then had to step down. And a week later, was fired. What's the strangest thing of all is that because he was the executive producer of the show, he had been intricately involved in figuring out, bringing in guest hosts and figuring out who was going to be his successor. And he had been pulling the strings a little bit to kind of arrange it so that he would become this new host. It must have seemed like a great idea at the time. I could figure this out, right? I can, I can pull all the right levers and make this happen in plain sight. But it all fell apart, and his career is in the dumpster. I don't mean to necessarily villainize him, though it seems like there's plenty of things to hold him accountable for, but this, that's a, just an illustration of a similar kind of thing at work here in this passage and a similar thing that's often at work in our lives. We have a lot of good ideas. Let's put those in scare quotes. Good ideas about what, how we want to work things out in our life. And they're not really good ideas. They lead to all kinds of problems. Problems. But, despite our good ideas, God meets us with his good news. That's really what we'll talk about this morning, our good ideas and God's good news. Think about the the good idea that Sarai and Abraham have. Now, you have to know the background a little bit. If you've been following in this series, you probably know it. Maybe maybe you just know it, uh, if you have a background in the church, but Abram's been called by God. This is God's rescue plan. This is the, Abram is the start of it, to finally deal with sin and to redeem this world, and he's been promised that he'll have descendants, descendants more numerous than the stars in the sky, more numerous than the sand on the seashore. The problem is they currently have zero descendants, right? There's no one, and they're older. Like, pretty old by this point. No offense to those of us who are a little long in the tooth, but uh, beyond the childbearing years, really, and uh, they don't have a child. So, they feel a little frustrated, I think, to say the least, that God doesn't seem to have delivered on what he, would pro- what he promised. Maybe they need to take matters into their own hands. Not to mention, of course, the stigma and the shame around infertility in the ancient world. And I think it's not a mistake that Sarah, Sarah is the one who, who, who starts this conversation. Because to be childless, again, in the ancient world, the modern world's not all that different, really, despite our changed values. But to be infertile in, the, in this world is a pretty shameful experience pretty frustrating experience. So they come up with a plan to solve the problem. And they follow a template, and we know this from a number of ancient Near Eastern documents, that was followed elsewhere. That to to have more children in your family, uh, the patriarch would take on the female servants. Uh, this happens elsewhere in the Bible as well. So this was a standard ancient Near Eastern practice. But let me remind you that this is the first book of the books of Moses. So there, there is commentary on his decision here. It's not a good decision. It's wrong, right? It's, it's sin. It's evil, despite the fact that it happens in a number of different places. So, uh, of course, Abram and Hagar are having this baby and the outcome for Abram and Sarai is strife and notice the conversation they get into in verses 5 and 6 Sarai comes to Abram and blames him as if it was not her idea Right? She comes to Abram and, I mean, so, in fact, she is so convinced that he's the one at fault that she calls God to bear witness. In her mind, right, it's become so much Abram's fault that she's even willing to call God in to judge between them. But notice Abram too, right? Abram just says, well, she's your servant, do what you want, See, Abram sort of evading responsibility, not sort of evading, evading responsibility, right? He, he you know, he, just, he listened to her idea, and he should have said no, but he didn't. And now she's mad at him, and now he's evading responsibility for it, as if he wasn't uh, intimately involved in what went on, right? And you can can imagine that fight going round and round. There's a lot of unintended consequences to our good ideas. In fact, in some sense, unintended consequences really are what our good ideas usually lead to. Because usually our good ideas are rooted in a delusion of control over our situation. We, t- we find ourselves thinking that we know what would be good for us. We know where we want to get. We think that that's what God wants for us, is to achieve this or that. And so we conveniently break God's law, right, in order to bring it about. It's that delusion that we can maintain control over our situation. I mean, it is like keeping a pet tiger. You know, every once in a while, there's a story that comes out, you know, about, in the news about somebody who kept a pet tiger. and Eventually, it mauls them, right? Because they were under the delusion that they could keep this wild animal as a pet. And it was going to be fine. But really, they were just... It was really the tiger that was letting them live <laughs> the whole time, right? I mean, they're, they're trying to tame this wild animal. And it's really the same way when we, as we get our good ideas about what we think God wants for our life, and we start to decide that we can lay aside his law, we're doing the same thing. And we talked about, in a previous sermon, we talked about thinking in terms of, the ends that we think God wants, and and justifying the means to get there. And this is the similar kind of thing, right? It's the delusion of control that we keep in those. And think about how this works out. Have you ever had a difficult friend? Probably comes, you know, the answer to that is probably yes for everybody here. And you, you know, and they ask you about something, they ask you to go somewhere you don't want to go, or step into some situation with them and you think, oh, you don't want to be there with them. And yet, what do you do? You tell them a little white lie so that they won't get mad at you or be frustrated with you. And you think, and then, you know, you find yourself having to reinforce the lie. I mean, maybe that happens once, but, you know, in a lot of our relationships it happens over and over again. And what are you doing? You're maintaining a lie. Because you thought it would be better to avoid dealing with this person forthrightly, honestly? And what have you created? A deeper problem. Uh, of course, friendship is one thing. It gets, it gets more and more difficult the deeper those relationships and the less optional those relationships become, right? You think about this within a family. Right, Parents and children, we get into this all the time. Thinking, I know where we're supposed to go with this. I want, and I mean, I'm not speaking from experience here or anything, but I want my house to be orderly, so I'm going to lose my temper because that'll get it all fixed up. As if that really solves the problem in the long run, right? Creates a deeper problem. We, uh, we do this in romance. You know, it's kind of a trope within uh, rom-coms that, or sitcoms, that, you know, somebody meets somebody, and they don't want to put them off, and so they create a lie that makes them more interesting. But of course, what we know is that that has baked into that, that relationship from the very start of Failure. Right, that that relationship really can't go on because eventually the person's going to know who this other person is. Right? Uh, the relationship can't last. It won't last. But this is, this, this is still what goes on. Maybe not at the grand scale of a sitcom. You may not be Art Vandelay, the architect. But, sorry, that's a Seinfeld reference if you're, if you're too young for Seinfeld, I'm sorry. Uh, you may not be that, right? But you you haven't created maybe that kind of a lie. But the lie that you are a really kind person, a really funny person. I mean, some of those things may be true in some way, right? But keeping up the delusion, having the sense that I can control that and manage what somebody sees about me. But of course, you know, the longer you're in a relationship with somebody, the more they see of who you are. I mean, that's the problem, right, when you get married is eventually you stop faking it and you start to be the person you really are. It happens in churches too. It happens in organizations as a whole, right? They live with the delusion of control and so they make a whole bunch of bad choices. Churches definitely do this. We put up with all kinds of bad behavior because God's at work here, right? We've got to keep that going. That might be the bad behavior of a pastor, It might be habits of a congregation, right? Whether that's gossip, shaming or blaming others. You get my point, right? Some of this is understanding then that the life of faith in God means accepting a loss of control. That you're not in control. Neither am I. Some of that's just the truth about our lives in general. Whether you're a believer or not, is that we're actually not in control and we're scared of admitting that we aren't. But that isn't blind faith, right? The difference is when we live by faith in the Lord, we are living by faith in someone who has a proven track record. In fact, as Christians living on the other side of the cross and the resurrection, our confidence in God is based on Jesus' death and resurrection. I mean, what else do you need from God to prove that he cares about you than to send his son to die for you and rise from the dead? To guarantee that it will be effective, right? I mean, that's, that is why we have faith. And in fact, he's guaranteed the long-term future. Really, the question is the near term. How are things going to work out in this particular situation? How is... How are things going to be next week, next year? Those are really the questions we're asking. And we obsess over resolving our dilemmas, but what God would have us do is think about walking in His ways. That doesn't mean you can't make choices. It doesn't mean you should be paralyzed in making wise choices, but it does mean the priority is walking in His ways. And when that means we recognize that we don't know how others are going to respond to that, it means going down that path. Rather than trying to control everything, it means loving others the way God has taught us. And you know what happens when that breaks down, right? You get into a cycle like Abram and Sarai get in. And this is true of the deepest problems in our relationships, the deepest relationships we have. Here, you start to see what happens, right? Blame shifting is first move. Right? Sarah is not recognizing her responsibility. She blames Abram for everything that happened. And there's lots of reasons why we shift blame, right? Because we're scared of what we have to admit about who we are about our weaknesses, about our lack of control. We're often ashamed of what it means to take responsibility for what we've done. And so we think it would be more painful to come to terms with my responsibility than to put all that on someone else. which is why blame-shifting always leads to a kind of cycle, right? You blame the other person, the relationship worsens. That only proves that they are blameworthy, and you're back to the worsened relationship and round and round, right? Back and forth. Of course, that gets worse when the other person evades responsibility. I know that sometimes there are people who accept all the blame for everything. It does happen sometimes. Uh, That does sometimes slow down the cycle, which is why some people choose that route. Of course, it deepens the bitterness below the surface. But most of us evade responsibility. I didn't do that. And the more we evade, the more the cycle accelerates, right? Blame and evasion. Blame, evade, blame, evade, right? And you see that both of them are really doing that to each other. So that implicit in Sarah's blame is an evasion of her responsibility. And implicit in his evasion is blame that she's not doing what she could have done all along. So, this is the question then about your good ideas and mine. Where are we blame shifting? And what relationships are difficult in your life right now? How have you shifted all the blame to somebody else? Now, I'm, I'm aware. That there are some situations that are not a two-way street, but they are not the vast majority of our relationships. Where are you blame shifting? Here's another question. Where are you evading? What is it you're avoiding dealing with about yourself? And then the deeper question is what is it you're trying to control? Because you show me blame and evasion and I will tell you there's something you're trying to control. It may be your self-image. It may be a set of circumstances. Could be a lot of different things. There's something we are trying to control. And what is needed rather When we sense that we don't have control of the situation, is prayer. This is actually why we pray as a church every week. I know a lot of people can't necessarily make it, but if there's a possibility you can, you should consider it, right? It's because this is out of our control. The kingdom of God is not in our control. We need to be in prayer. The various situations that we find ourselves in, the relationships we find ourselves in, are out of our control. But they're not out of God's control. And that is why we pray. And why the focus of our prayer is to give, is to ask Him to work in our lives first and foremost. And so we listen to God's Word. We pray and we listen to God's Word. What would God have you do here? Look, the Bible doesn't give you a step-by-step instructions for every possible situation you might run across in life. Right? It's not that kind of book. Because the answer to your question about what would God have me do in this relationship, in this friendship, in my marriage as it is right now, in my career and the decision points I have is is to walk in his ways. That's the solution. The solution isn't strategic. It's not about finding just the right angle of approach. It's about dealing with your own heart. Which is why then the basic rhythm of the Christian life is always described as repentance and forgiveness. And hopefully reconciliation that comes out of those when they meet. Right? Repentance and forgiveness. You know, this is why this stuff is the basics of the faith. And why we never really outgrow it. Because it's what we always need. However creative, however Thoughtful we are as a, as a uh, follower of Jesus. We never get past those things. They're always the basic building blocks and they're always the touchstones we go back to. Prayer and the word, repentance and forgiveness. And you see then, as their good idea falls apart, that God steps in. And the person who's sort of been used in this whole situation runs away right? Hagar can't take it anymore. She runs away, and the angel of the Lord shows up. This is a curious figure. There are angels throughout the Bible, but occasionally there's one referred to as the angel of the Lord. And the weirdest thing about the angel of the Lord is is there's usually a blurring of the angel speaking and God speaking. The distinction between God's voice and the angel's voice is fuzzy. We see this a number of different times. Probably the most obvious elsewhere would be in Genesis 22, when Abraham is tested later on. We'll, talk, we'll get to that story later in the fall. But uh, the burning bush in Exodus 3. The angel of the Lord is in the burning bush, but it is God talking out of that burning bush. Uh, Theologians have speculated about who the angel of the Lord is, and I'm not going to get down that road, only to say that God has shown up in a peculiar way for Hagar. And he asks her a question, and when God asks questions, he's not looking for information. It's an invitation. Just like when he showed up in the garden, right? Where are you? He didn't need information on where to find Adam. He was inviting him. And the same here. He's inviting her attention. And she answers him. And in verses 8 and 9, he sends her back. It seems like a kind of impractical journey anyway. You're pregnant and wandering into the desert. But he sends her back, and he sends her, and this is where we get into verses 10 through 12, with a promise that ought to sound a little familiar. Your people are going to multiply. They can hardly be numbered. Ishmael's descendants will... Well, it doesn't quite say be like the sand on the seashore or the stars in the sky, but the echoes of that, those promises are here. At least the physical promises, right? Perhaps not the spiritual ones, but it is a promise that God will still watch over her. And so she names, as the angel tells her, her son, God Hears. That's what Ishmael means God Hears. And then she names the place, God, the living one who sees. God hears her and sees her. And listen, uh, the history of Ishmael's descendants is kind of a fascinating one. In Genesis 25, we hear, read more about them, and it pretty much locates them in modern Arabia. The Quran in Islam makes a lot out of this, and so Ishmael is seen as really being the real firstborn son of Abraham. Um, I'm not going to go down that, that road, but uh, but this is you know this is sort of their that's where they kind of take a different history in their mind from the story. But whatever it is, we see that God is still at work in Hagar and Ishmael's lives. Christian theology has talked uh, in Reformed theology in particular about an idea of common grace, right? That God is a God who, though He will judge the world, has restrained His own judgment, restrained the evil in us so that though every inclination of our hearts is only evil all the time, as Genesis 6 says, he, He restrains that from being active. And in fact, I mean, we see And we see this in a number of places that sometimes those who are even actively turned against God make beautiful things, come to understand things that are true. This is a strange teaching because it sits a little bit awkwardly, I think, for a lot of us. I mean, I think on one hand it makes sense, right? We know that, you know, you can be a good scientist without being a Christian. We know you can be a good artist without being a Christian. We know you can be a good teacher without being, you know, we know all these different things are true at some level, but what does it mean that God is still in control? I mean, you might remember the, the previous passage in chapter 15 that we saw last week where God pulled back the curtain a little bit to show that he is at work in all these other different people groups to bring about his purposes. You know, Calvin says that, and he's talking about pagan philosophers in this this moment. He says in, in the Institutes, if we regard the Spirit of God as the sole fountain of truth, we shall neither reject the truth itself, nor despise it wherever it shall appear, unless we wish to dishonor the Spirit of God. And God is working in Hagar's life, in Ishmael's life. Now, I'm not saying that that means that we, that Christians take things blindly, that we don't look at the assumptions at work and various things, but it also means that Christians should probably not think of themselves as being super special in terms of what they know beyond the Bible, <laughs> in their ability to understand what's going on in the world. In other words, What common grace should teach us is a basic virtue that we know we're supposed to have of humility. And even what we do know that is unique, it is given to us by God in his word. It is not our creativity that came up with it. It is God's gift to his people. And I think that there's something going on here, even narratively, where Hagar is being told to return to the household of the covenant. It will become clear over time that Hagar will not stay there. But for the time being, she's being told, go back to the covenant community that I made. And I think at least the possibility is open here that she would be part of that. Ishmael won't be the son that was promised, but that they would enjoy the worship of the one true living God. That they would be part of the story of redemption, I think is at least on offer here. And that does remind us, right, that the, some one of the things that we were starting to notice last week as we talked about what it means to be a community shaped by God's covenant is that we are called to bring others in. Now, it is up to God, of course, to sort through the question of who's saved and who isn't. That is isn't our right to determine, but rather to bring, to bear, the things that God works through. Some of the things we already talked about, right? The word and prayer, the sacraments, right? And that what is being held out to Hagar is always held out to others, right? That they can come. And hear God's word. If they will make a profession of faith receive the sacraments, right? And we know that that's not a perfect distinction. That the, the, the discernment of the elders that somebody is a, a believer is not, doesn't make it true. <laughs> <Good> grief. Hope. Oh. <laughs> but it does mean that what is held out to her and what we always hold out is that you can meet God in his community. And that doesn't mean it's the community itself that makes God accessible. Because every church is dysfunctional at some level, right? I hope you know that's true. If you ever find yourself in a church community that believes it has no dysfunction, you are in a dysfunctional community by definition, I mean, I know that there are extremes of it, and I'm not saying there aren't times to (laughs) leave a really toxic community, but the thing that God meets us in is in his word and in prayer. And some of you may be struggling with, you know, frustrations in in, I mean, maybe even in this church. And what God calls us to is to his word and to prayer and to the reflection on what we need to repent of and forgive, The church. I think it's more than just what we come individually with. Churches also ought to ask that question: Are we driving others out? Because I think that most people do not walk away from the church, and there has been a mass exodus in more recent generations. Right, millennials and Gen Z. This is just kind of statistically obvious. People are leaving, and but the reason people leave is not because the man the arguments for atheism or agnosticism or something are so powerful. I mean, yes, a few people find those powerful. Most people cite the hypocrisy of the church. They cite ways in which the church has not been loving. And I know there are some things that get misinterpreted as not loving that are not true. I know that. But we also know the church can be a pretty brutal place too. And all this is to say then that while God is at work in the world more generally, it is to redeem people. The purpose of God's common grace and restraining sin, restraining evil, even restraining his own judgment is to bring more people to himself in his project to reclaim the whole world through his son. So, what are the resources you have to deal with your relationships? Maybe to deal with your struggles with the church. We talked about some practical steps, but you need to know above everything and anything that you have a God who sees and hears. I'm sure anybody who saw Hagar, a pregnant woman, wandering around the desert, would have said, you need to go back. This is a bad idea. But what convinces her is that a God meets her who sees her and hears her. And that is the good news. Because God's sight, God's hearing are not just an anthropomorphism. (laughs) The good news of the gospel is that God has actually entered in and taken on flesh and suffered and dealt with difficult people (laughs) in person, face to face. And he sees and he hears. What is going on in our lives? Literally in the flesh. And where we failed, he gave his life for us. That's the God we have who sees and hears. That's why we can have courage to deal, to follow in his way, right? Because he will not forget. Why we have courage to deal with our difficult relationships, to forgive and to repent because he sees and he hears. And everything is in his hands. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are at work. Most of all, that you have accomplished all that you promised through your son. So as we come to the table... Give us that reminder that our faith would be strengthened, that we would know that you really do see and hear, and you will never forget. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.